You know, there are only two things more beautiful than a good gun. Swiss watch or a woman from anywhere. You ever had a good Swiss watch? All right, welcome to Genre Podcast. I'm Zach. I'm John. I'm Bob. And today we have a tale of madness and ill fate in the Old West. I'm talking about, of course, Red River, 1948, directed by Howard Hawks. Guys, what did we just watch? (laughs) A very dark tale, in my opinion. Hmm. From start to finish, just very troubling. (laughs) Possibly the darkest tale we've watched, I think. (laughs) You know, when I first, when, when this movie first started, like the first 20 minutes, I felt this was some kind of like weird founding myth. For, for like a town, that's what I was expecting. And then things just kind of took a turn that, was, that I wasn't expecting at all. And from that point on, this was a real like Shakespearean father-son battle for power that was inevitably going to end, or so yeah. it seemed inevitably going to end in tragedy. Hmm. But then in the end, thankfully we get comedy. But for like anything, like this is a long movie. This was like our movies, like two hours, 10 minutes. And for two hours, this was a dark, dark, dark film. It only became not dark because they needed to wrap up the story. Yeah, I think so too. (laughs) Quickly. (laughs) In a very weird comedic way. But they could have ended with some kind of like, you know, everyone dies situation. They could have ended with Mm. the father killing the son or the son killing the father. It could have ended in numerous violent ways and yet it didn't end violently. In the end, you know, the father and son who have been at loggerheads for like an hour at this point, the father's threatened to kill the son for a perceived betrayal because the son questions his authority and basically took over his ranch from him. And in the end, Montgomery Clift, Matt, the boy in this situation, his love interest intervenes and sits them both down and shouts at both of them, father and son, says, you ought to grow up, you're being very childish. And then they just laugh at each other and he's like, you ought to marry that girl. And (laughs) that's how it ends. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, it's a very twee disney ending but like everything that came before was was just dark hard to digest yeah Hmm. let's start with the characters just to just to get our our foundational bricks laid down all right so we have thomas dunson john wayne and i think this is the second film we've watched with john wayne it is we also watched stagecoach yeah yeah john wayne's character is completely different in this film Mm -hmm. so When I saw John Wayne in Stagecoach, I was thinking like Woody in Toy Story. You know, he's just a a pull the string and say something cute cowboy. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But this is a darker, almost paranoid version of of John Wayne. Oh, very paranoid, yeah. It's only nine years after that, that first John Wayne we watched this month, Stagecoach. And yet in nine years, like you say, he's gone from being this fresh face, Mm -hmm. like, you know, cowboy all... I, I sure do appreciate that, ma'am. Kind of a cowboy. <laughs> in nine years, he's gone from that to being like basically a Macbeth-style tyrant of sorts. Yeah. It's quite it's interesting. Very good. It's great casting because when I first saw him, I'm thinking, oh, it's a John Wayne movie. John Wayne always does the right thing. And I'm starting yeah. to doubt what's happening, like my perception of what's <laughs> happening it. in the movie. Because the guy comes up, John Wayne's going to steal all this land. And the owner comes up and says, hey, that's not your land, John Wayne. John Wayne kills him. He just kills him and buries yeah. him there. And I thought, oh, maybe maybe John Wayne needed to do that. Maybe he was just, but he just gets worse well, and worse. That scene was absolutely crazy. 
Like, he, he shoots this man, Don Diego, for his land, kills him, and you're watching, it like, what the fuck is going on here? I thought John Wayne was the good guy, like you're saying. And then he kills him, and then he's like, oh, well, I guess I just killed a man. And then he says to his, <laughs> his, his trusty sidekick, Groot, he says, Groot, get me my shovel and my Bible. <laughs> I'll read over him. <laughs> yep. It's like he's killed this man for his land, savaged him, and then he reads a, yeah, reads a prayer over his dead body and then buries him in the land he just appropriated for himself. Mm-hmm. Just just brutal. Yeah. And it's an inside joke with all his men. <laughs> they all know all yeah. he does is kill people and bury yeah. them. Planting and then reading. Read Planting and reading. Yeah. Let's let's actually talk about this scene. There's one detail in it that I found mm-hmm. really, really interesting. And that's in order to get to this land, mm-hmm. he had to cross the Red River. Now, I didn't know what the Red River was until I got on Google Maps. And the Red River is the northern border of Texas, right? So that's that's what where the line is drawn for Texas. He goes down there and this guy comes up and says, you're on Don Diego's land. Now, these are, I don't know if Mexico was a state at this time. There's certain, you know, whether they're Spanish, whether they're Mexican, whatever, you know, I'm not, I'm not clear on the timeline, but they're certainly of Hispanic descent. And they say, this is his land. And he says, well, where does Don Diego live? Oh, 400 miles away. And he says to him, you tell Don Diego that everything north of the Rio Grande is mine. Now, what is the Rio Grande? That is the southern border of Texas. So in killing this man and and laying claim to this territory, we have an alternate creation myth for the establishment of the current U.S. political borders. Like in one swoop... (laughs) John Wayne just claimed it all for for the USA. Whoa. Oh, my days. For a while, he seems like he's really cruising, right? He's got these big ambitions. He's going to be, you know, create the greatest ranch, you know, of all time. And he's, you know, he's he's going around like he's John Locke telling people, oh, I work for this land. And, you know, you got to earn that brand. Because the whole subtext here, because the way this film's introduced is like there's a man and a boy. The man is Thomas Dudson. The boy is this boy he picks up when he's 14 years old after his, a village gets attacked by the Cherokees, I think. And yeah, everyone gets killed except for this one boy. So he takes him in. You know, this boy is kind of a spirited boy, but he likes him. But after a certain amount of time, the boy starts asking, like, when am I going to get my own brand? In fact, no, yeah, he starts asking straight away, when am I going to get my own brand? When When's the M for my name, Matt? When's the M for Matt going to get his own brand? And that's a constant source of tension between them, you know, from the pretty much the first day together until 14 years later after mm-hmm. Matt gets back from fighting in the Civil War, I think. And mm-hmm. then he starts to stand up for what he wants, for his brand a little bit more. Well, he's pretty, he's pretty willing to just work with John Wayne. He's a very patient person, this mm-hmm. younger guy, Matt. John well, he accused him of being soft. That's the, oh, whole, yeah. you know, constant accusation by That's true. Dunson. He's like, you're soft, kid. You're soft. Yeah. Have we read any other stories or watched any other films that feature a father-son tension like this? Destry ends with a father-son pairing. So the, the good cowboy ends up... Someone, the, the kid whose family also is killed, starts following Destry around and starts copying him and kind of becoming like him. So, But that happens at the end of the movie. That's not, that's not Destry, is it? That Oh, no, you, you might be right. Hmm. So I'm thinking of something else. Because there's also... A, I don't think a movie we've watched, but a book we read, The Shootist. Oh, the in Shootist, The Shootist, yeah. a boy does kind of start imitating him a little bit in that. And that's also John Wayne's character. Oh, yeah. Like when yeah. when he drives yeah. him out. So in The Shootist, yeah. which I think is John Wayne's last role. Hmm. 
Oh. I think that was like 20 years after this one. So that was quite a, quite a way in the future. But in his last role, he also has this sort of father-son relationship that's very tense at times. So maybe it is a theme mm-hmm. that comes up a lot with John Wayne movies, or at least in two of them. But Dunstan and Matt, Matthew, their relationship isn't entirely antagonistic, no. right? There is love between them. I guess you would say there's affection between them. There's this great moment when they first meet and John Wayne, you know, takes his gun and he says, don't ever trust anybody till you know them. And Matt says, like, child Matt says, I won't after this. You know, like, there's this moment where, or there's there's this feeling that John Wayne teaches through hard examples, and he doesn't really have a concept of, like, kindness or, like, mm. affection in the way that he teaches. It's very much like, this is a hard world, and in order to learn, you have to, you have to suffer the mistake. And I am willing to make and, you suffer yeah, that mistake. Yeah, and I think the fatal flaw of... Tom Dunson in this movie is he never changes his mind. He's incredibly, incredibly stubborn. And that's his big fault. And right at the start of the movie, when he's a young man, he's setting out and he wants to start his own ranch. And there's a woman there who loves him. This woman's begging him to stay. She's like, please stay, please stay. And he leaves her behind. And then 14 years later, when his ranch starts to fail, he looks back and says, sure, sure, I should have stayed with that woman. Or something like that. And yeah, what she says to him before he leaves, she says, oh, just once in your life, change your mind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he never does change his mind, not once in his life. Yeah, yeah. And it leads ultimately to his downfall. That's a really good point. Well, I think that woman is a foundational, like, like the woman's death is a foundational character development moment for him. In the sense of, you know, she says, stay with me or at least mm. take me with you. And he says, no, I'll come back for you later. And then he just gets right down the road and the Native Americans attack and, you know, kill her and the entire wagon train. So there's this sense of cruel fate, I guess you could say. Survivor's goat, would you? Like, I just get the, I never got the sense of guilt over it. I got the sense of like the kind of hardness one gets when they feel like the world is chaotic and violent and you have to put up a tough exterior to mm. cope with that, to handle with it. Not to like turn into a psychologist yeah, or a psychiatrist, he's got trauma. Or whatever, but I, I did feel like this was a very Tr- trigger one. Yeah, I did feel like this was a very foundational <laughs> moment for him. Yeah, it was surprising though how little he seems to. He doesn't seem that guilty. He does just seem kind of. He's a hard hard guy anyway. And he just kind of remains hard. He doesn't really change after that. He yeah. does. They set it up weird. There's a few like threads in this movie that i think like you said they get wrapped up really quick at the end but when they meet tess malay who ends up marrying matt she dunson asks her to marry him at first and she's like she asks him the exact same thing that the woman who died did she said won't you let me go with you and he's gonna say no and then he thinks about it probably thinking back on the woman he let die and he says okay i'll let you come with me so he finally changes his mind there yeah, he also he also says to her, um, he says, I want you to give me a son. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, are you serious? That's, that's yeah. insane. I don't think she just gave him a son, but still weird. Well, no, she doesn't. Because he finds out, because he offers her half yeah. of all of his estate if she gives him a son. Yes. And she says, I'll give you a son if you don't kill Matt. And that clues, his, that clues him in that she's in love with Matt. So I think from that moment, the deal's off. Well, she still gets it anyway, though, because Matt's kind of his adopted son. And then at the end, when he's like, you see this? 
I'm gonna put I'm finally gonna put an M on my brand next to D. So now they're gonna share all the cattle. So she if they get married, she gets half the cattle anyway. Oh yeah. Whether she, she marries the father she or the really son. She really tricked them on that one, <laughs> yeah. didn't she? So she gets all the cattle. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like they say, you know, don't don't focus on getting women, you know, focus on raising cattle. Women will come. cattle, Tess Malay, there's this great moment where, you know, when he's doing the whole, I'm going to put a baby in you thing. <laughs> John Wayne just turns to her in the tent and he says, stand up. And she's just like, huh? And he's like, stand up and turn around. Like he wants to like look her over kind of a thing. Yeah. Mm. And she just turns back to him and snaps. Don't tell me what to do, Mr. Dunson. And then there's this shot where the camera frame changes from him being in focus, maybe like him, the one in power to camera shift to her in focus her face mm. and John Wayne's face, like looking at the ground downcast. And he's just like, all right. And the interesting thing is she then stands up and does give him a look while lighting a cigarette. Now this is 1948. And I know that smoking for women was very <laughs> taboo up until the 1960s. So we got ourselves a smart, sharp, combative, and what would you call that? A taboo breaking? We got ourselves a bad girl. She takes here. an arrow to we got the a shoulder. Bad girl. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't react at all. She's like, oh. It doesn't even flinch. No big deal. Some would call that bad acting. I read online, some would call that it's bad, bad acting, acting. But I choose to view it as great characterization. It's, characterization. it's great characterization. I don't see what how kind of a moron would think that was bad acting. Well, can, I, I, can I mention that scene? So she's really cool and she does a lot of badass things. She's a great character, very strong character. And she even like tells the two boys what for at the end and kind of ends the movie with her own volition. But it's very weird. And this is why I'm saying maybe some threads got dropped because in the beginning of the movie, John Wayne gives the woman that he loves his mother's bracelet and just says, you know, I hope you don't die. Here's my mother's bracelet. I'll see you again. Then the boy who he adopts after his whole village is dead has the bracelet and that he grows up to be Matt. So Matt wears the bracelet this whole time. And then eventually Matt gives Tess Malay the bracelet. And I felt like there was some weird thing going on in the middle of this movie. Like when he asked her to stand up, turn around, I thought he was trying to recognize this woman. Like maybe it's his daughter by the woman who died. Mm. Or maybe there was just a weird, I don't know what the bracelet was trying to do. It, it felt to me like the bracelet was there to move the plot forward in the sense of like, how did he know his old girlfriend died? Well, he found the bracelet on the kid later. No, mm. he found the bracelet on the Native American who, who he cut in the stream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. So, so the bracelet functions as a kind of messenger so that mm. we understand what happened off screen. Mm. Hmm. Very, well, you know, yeah, because he kills that man and then he picks up his bracelet, doesn't he? Yeah. So I guess it's the inference okay. that this guy killed. That's interesting. But, maybe. but I agree with you, Bob, because that's, that's the beginning of the story. The thread is dropped. You're right. I do know that significant cuts were made to the script of this film because oh. of a character who we have not talked about yet. Cherry Valence. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. my days. The subtext going on here. Now, if I wanted some some big d energy some big dog energy mm. for my newborn son i would name my son cherry because that is a <laughs> sick boy's name <laughs> cherry valence is a very fascinating character so the behind the the inside baseball scoop is that supposedly 
Cherry Valance and the character who played Matthew, I can't remember his name, or the actor who played Matthew, I can't remember his name. Montgomery Clift. Yeah, we're having an affair on on set. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, Cherry Valance's character was supposed to be much, much more big in this story. But he showed up, quote, drunk and lecherous all the time. And they ended up cutting most of the scenes with him in it. Well, he was still in quite a um, number of scenes. And the, the subtext between him and Matt was really, really close to the surface. I couldn't believe what I was watching considering John Wayne was in yeah. this movie. Like, did he see this movie? Did I know. he genuinely <laughs> not see what was going on? I mean, you know, these boys meet. Yeah. They're staring each other in the eye, for God's sake. Playing a little, I'll show you Literally, yours. Literally, I'll show, show you yours if you show me mine. You're talking about guns. Then they fire, up, fire yeah. off each other's guns. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, so it was just crazy. It reminded me of Top Gun, you know? Oh, yeah. Iceman. Mm. Maverick, you can be my co-pilot any day or whatever. Volleyball, spiking the volleyball, shooting the rock. They, there is the sexual tension, but then also they're promising to kill each other throughout the movie. Like that's why Cherry joins. He has met, they're both legendary. They're both like the most legendary guys with guns. And Cherry wants to get a piece of this, like to be the ultimate. So if he kills Matthew, he'll be the best of guns. But that also never happens because John Wayne just, turns around and shoots Cherry at one yeah. point and Cherry's totally out of the picture. And we never get to see the the climax of Matthew and Cherry to kill each other. Well, that's another weird part about this ending. This ending felt so tacked on. Like, this was just like a studio came in and just added a tacked on like mm. a, an, a, an ending that doesn't belong with the film. Because it just ends as, it, as a comedy, mm. but it just wasn't a comedy for two hours. And it's like, what? <laughs> what's going on? Yeah. It was crazy. But I also want to go back yeah. uh, to the Cherry Valance Matt thing. So there's a quote here, and this is my favorite quote in the entire movie. And this this really sealed the deal for me with the whole subtext thing between Cherry Valance and Matt. Cherry Valance says to him, he says, there's only two things more beautiful than a gun. A Swiss watch or a woman Swiss from anywhere. And then his follow-up <laughs> question, he asks Matt, you ever have a good Swiss watch? <laughs> <laughs> What is going on? I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then there's a whole thing that Cherry Valance has like found a woman. He's like, is she beautiful? I uh, I really liked how Cherry Valance, the character didn't feel written to be unhinged. It felt written to be slightly villainous perhaps or dangerous, but it didn't feel written to be unhinged. Mm. But the But the actor who played him, to me, I just looked at this man's eyes and I was like, this guy is fucking crazy <laughs> <laughs> he kind of reminds me of he kind of reminds me of like the doc holiday type character from last week's uh, last time's I agree. Uh, yeah. uh, film my darling clementine mm-hmm. you know what not not yeah doc holiday well you know he's the friend of the hero but he's got this wildness to him. He's mm-hmm. like, he's got one foot in good one foot in evil you know and you know he's leading towards good but he's still a little bit evil I think Cherry Valance has got that energy to him where yeah. he's, he's straddling good and evil a little bit. You know, he's not he's not complete lawful good, but he's also not, you know, pure evil. He's just, he's straddling that line, you know. I think they're the most compelling kind of, you know, yeah. uh, Western men. Western is in the Western. Yeah. Well, speaking of Westerners in the Westerns, we've talked, like, John, you've pointed this out before, there's mm. types in Westerns. And we saw that really clearly in Stagecoach. We had the outlaw who's actually got a heart of gold. We have the outcast who has a heart of gold. We have the drunk. Then we have some shady people, some people who are going to double cross you. 
In this, we had another not drunk character, but kind of seems to me to be playing the drunk. The father and son pair, Thomas Dunson's Groot. assistant. Nadine Groot? Mm. Groot. Nadine Groot, Groot and then yeah. Nadine Groot's son. Uh, I spent the whole movie waiting for him to say, I am Groot. And I he, am never, Groot. Uh, he never delivered. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that gets... That must, yeah, that must have been left on the cutting room floor. But <laughs> Sealing explanation. Yeah. But the, the father and son are interesting because the son is the coward who... You know, it's going to be well, he's a sugar throughout the movie. And then he finally... He just keeps stealing sugar. He's, sugar he's like a little and child. He's a sweet tooth. <laughs> <laughs> but he also, like, he causes a stampede that kills a man. And they lose, like, 600 sweet cattle. Tooth. So he's innocently yeah. stealing sugar. He's got a sweet tooth. And then his father reminds me of the kind of drunk character because he kind of goes... He's just fo- he's just a follower yes. of John Dunson. Mm-hmm. But he's a drunk because he always has to ask for his teeth. He bets his teeth, loses them. And then he kind of reminds me of someone saying, hey, can I get another drink? Can I get another yeah, drink? Can I get another yeah. drink? Because he has to ask for his teeth every meal. Codependency. Yeah. You know, he reminds me of the court jester. Yeah. yeah. He reminds me of the court jester or like the medieval fool in the sense of he's the only one who can speak truth to power. But hmm. the only reason he can do that is because he's such a, he's such a knucklehead. Because he has no power. But he doesn't even mm-hmm. manage to speak the truth to power most yeah. of the time. He mostly gets shut down. He's like, you never listen. You never listen to what I say. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I loved his dynamic with uh, Quo. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's very funny. Yeah. When when he gambles away his his set of teeth to Quo and Quo says, my name is now Two Jaw Quo. (laughs) (laughs) It's just funny stuff. That was a great line. Mm -hmm. That That was was a... The relationship between both him and Quo and him and his his, uh, sweet tooth son, I thought... Mm -hmm really added a lot of levity and dimension to this film. You know, it's not just the the budding heads between father and son or the 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 budding pistols of of the the kid and the rival, but it's also like all these other cast of characters who have their own relationships and dynamics that aren't necessarily relevant to the plot but still make it feel like we're populated in a world here. I liked I liked what they did. I do too. I think they're great foils for each other for father-son relationships too. Like we have the two main characters, you know, John Wayne and Montgomery Clift. They're both the ultimate authority. And John Wayne eventually becomes like a poisonous authority. He's willing to do anything just to get his way. Montgomery Clift is mm-hmm. always going to do the right thing. But they're kind of like always going forward. They're the boss. And then the other two, like the one guy can't even hold onto his teeth. But he also can't even hold on to his son who's going to steal sugar constantly. So they're like a father-son who can't get their shit together at all. Versus these other father and son who are like, they talk about good results, bad results, and something in between. And I feel like John Wayne and Montgomery Clift are going to go either to Missouri or to Paladin. No, where do they go? Abilene. Abilene. They're either going to go to Missouri or Abilene. It's either going to be a complete disaster or a complete success. And these other two are just trying to get through the day. But still, being cowards, they kill <laughs> they kill someone because of a stampede. Yeah. So they, they, they were an interesting pair. You know, I'm kind of thinking about types again since uh, you mentioned it, Bob. And I'm thinking about how it feels to me like the types who we meet in this film are unlike the types that we have met in other Western films. So Hmm. in the sense of, we don't really have lawmen here. We don't really have outlaws here. What we have are just 
hardworking people. You know, we have we have like literal cowboys. We have people who drive cattle across long distances. As foil to that, like this is the only Western I think that I've ever seen that ends with a deal that end like where the climax is a business transaction. I mean, you'd argue it's not the real climax of the film, but I would argue that, you know, what what they're getting at is like the whole thing they're leading up to is this moment where they sit down across the table from a cattle broker and he offers them $20 per head of cattle, mm-hmm. you know, and just, I mean, I don't know much about the weight of currency at this time, but I know that he was promising $2 a head of cattle mm-hmm. to the guy who Meek, who he stole all the cattle from quite unethically, I would add. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so it seems like they've really landed upon this windfall profit. Incredibly unethically. Everything about this guy's business model is crooked based on murder and fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they, like to me, it felt like the climax was them just getting this windfall of money. Well, not really them, though. It was the Matt. It was the son that really got it and earned it. You know, I think there's a message in this because, you know, this film is is certainly, you know, not unaware that John Wayne's kind of a bad guy in this. He starts out really just being like, you know, cause the setting here that we're talking about, it really is, a you know, kind of a state of nature or a state of war, you know, in, in you know, in the sense, in the political mm. sense, you know, the, the, they're not in towns yet. It's still kind of like a lawless place. Who's the law? Who's, mm. Whose authority is in that land? You know, it's not clear to anybody there. So that's very interesting. And he seems like he's going to be this founder of a new town for a while in this. It's like, you know, well, you appropriate the uh, the land and you till it and you, you know, earn, you put your name on it, right? Because that's what happens right at the start of the film. It's about the brand. He picks up this boy and they get two cattle. And the boy says, I should have my brand on one of these. Even when he was a young boy, he, you know, that's what he said. And John Wayne doesn't allow him. He says, you're going to earn it. You've got to earn it. And then for two hours, this guy tries to earn it, and he just doesn't get it given to him no matter what he does. So it seems like John Wayne could have been this perfect Lockean hero, but he wasn't. He because he wasn't virtuous. He 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 didn't help other people. He didn't have sentiment for other people, and he was stubborn. So it led him hmm. ultimately to become a tyrant, and he had to be overthrown essentially. And then a more you know just way of organizing things had to be introduced. More people had to get involved. Hmm. and they needed a more benevolent, softer leader. But And that ultimately is what got them the windfall, right? Mm-hmm. So I almost see it as like a historical narrative, like don't do it this way, do it mm-hmm. this way. That's how you get your windfall. Yeah, or like you raise your children hoping that they overcome your personal failures. Oh yeah, that too, right. For sure. And yeah. just this sense that it's a multiple generational thing, you know, it's not one guy, you know, it's happened over a few generations. Yeah. Or at least a couple of generations. Well, that reminds me of a lot of the books that we've read in Westerns and lots of the movies that we've seen where there is two generations happening. And sometimes it's pessimistic. Sometimes it's neither pessimistic nor optimistic. But if we look at the shootist, you know, the one who inherits the guns, the boy who inherits the the guns is way worse than his adopted father. So we have a father who's dying, being killed by his own son, and the son is going to be potentially evil. So we have a anti-society, anti-next generation kind of sentiment in the shootist. Then in these other movies like Hondo and Dest, well, in the book Hondo and then Destry Rides Again, the son character ends up just being a carbon copy of the father. But in this movie, we have the son overcome, like you said, kind of making up for his father's bad acts. So this one is going to be the real, the son's going to be the real hero and the father's going to be the one that fails. It kind of reminds me of True Grit in that way, where Maddie is the one who is the 
most straight and narrow character or the good character and the other generations before her had their failings. So this one seems mm-hmm. optimistic, like they overcome a lot. And we know that the generation that's going to take over will do the right thing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because like what doing the right thing here seems to mean is working hard for great profit. And like someone else said earlier, like establishing your brand, making your mark upon the landscape. I mean, this film is the story of Matt's establishment of this trail. What, what's it called? The Chisholm Trail, I think it's called. Chisholm Trail. Like the, yeah. So this is a this is a famous trail, as far as I can tell, that you know was used hundreds, thousands of times from that moment on. But this is the establishment of it. So in a sense, that trail is Matt's brand, along with you know whatever brand he's going to get from the farm. Well, at the end, yeah, he gets his brand, but it's only alongside the D of Dunson. You know, he doesn't get his own brand on Brantley. He's not the new boss. Mm-hmm. He's a partner. He gets basically gets, you know, in, in more contemporary business terms, mm-hmm. he gets made a partner of the of the branch of the company, even though he was the real impetus behind building it. Yeah. And keeping Dunson's name attached to that brand still means that although that brand is being successful because of these new, more ethical means and more legitimate means, it's still built on murder and a general gangsterism on the part of uh, mm-hmm. uh, John Wayne's character. And I mean, you know, because he's, he's a horrible boss. You know, he, he goes into a, a saloon, a tavern, and recruits all these cowboys to, you know, herd cattle. And basically says to them, in a sense, he's writing what he's doing. But anyway, he says to them, like, part of your contract is you've got to finish the job. So some people start leaving him. And he says, no, you signed a contract. Again, recalling Locke a little bit here. You signed a contract. And they're like, no, man, I, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do it. And he just shoots them. Essentially, it's like, if you leave this contract, you will get killed. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I really do think the Cowboys need to look at starting like some kind of like trade union or something. But because <laughs> there's some real bad mistreatment of employees going on in this in this film through the yeah. actions of Dunson. He's a bad boss. Well, well, the very first scene we get with Dunson is him being part of another wagon train. Mm-hmm. You know, the one that ends up getting burned and you know blah 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 but the line that happens is he announces that he's leaving and he's taking his cattle with him to start his own cowboy business whatever and the person says you signed a contract you can't do that john wayne says i signed nothing if i had i'd stay so to me i read that very first line as an as oh these are the ethics of john wayne of john wayne's character if I had signed a contract, I would stay through thick and thin. I am a man of my word, you know, no matter what, and go down with the ship. And that's how I read him from the beginning. And I think that's how the filmmaker wants us to read John Ford's character, because we have this implicit idea in our heads of John Ford is always the good guy, the noble guy. But what we get is that that principle, you know, cranked up to an extreme where suddenly he's murdering people. Or suddenly he's trying to, you know, tie a guy to a wagon wheel and whip him to death, you know? <laughs> yeah. He really turns into Colonel Kurtz of the Old West. He does. <laughs> he, he very much does so. But I want to ask you guys what you thought of this quote, because it really stood out to me, but I can't pinpoint what it's doing in the film. So he says, when he's talking about establishing his farm, this is just before the the time jump of 14 years. He says... Give me 10 years and I'll have that brand on the gates of the greatest ranch in Texas. The big house will be down by the river and the corrals and the barns behind it. It'll be a good place to live in. 
10 years and I'll have the Red River D on more cattle than you've looked at anywhere. I'll have that brand on enough beef to feed the whole country. Good beef for hungry people. Beef to make them strong, make them grow. But it takes work and it takes sweat and it takes time, lots of time. It takes years. (laughs) The American dream, baby. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, I feel like that's the closest we get to an ethical, like, hmm, what would you call that? Like when a character mm-hmm. monologues their way into a ethical stance, mm. this is it for, for John Wayne's character. Well, I'm not sure because he really doesn't live by those words. He works hard for 14 years. It just happens off camera. That's true. That's true. You know, the yeah. other thought I had was, was this movie funded by the beef industry in the United States? Mm-hmm. Like you could have taken that 10 second clip and put it in a television advertisement for beef and it would have been perfect. It would have been beef to make the country strong. Good beef for hungry people. Speaking of beef, I've never seen that many cows before. Watching that herd of thousands and thousands of real cows was terrifying. Yeah. That had to be terrifying to film. I, I, f- I feel like we, you know, me personally, I've always caught, caught like almost like used Westerns and like cowboy Hmm. movies interchangeably but when i'm thinking about it this is the first Mm -hmm. like true Hmm. cowboy movie i think i've ever seen you know a a movie about cowboying yeah you know featuring cowboys nothing but cowboys doing cowboy things just just (laughs) balls to the wall cowboy business that's not i've never seen that before usually it's like you know the guy's a cowboy (laughs) but the real thing is he kills people you know guy's a cowboy but it's really about love the guy's a cowboy but he's gonna become a lawman or whatever like it's, it's never like He's always incidentally yeah. a cowboy for like five minutes to the start of a movie. Just like last week in My Darling Clementine, he's like doing cow herding, but that's not really his thing. That's what he does between being a marshal in a town. And yeah, I just think it's remarkable that, you know, the cowboys are so ubiquitous with this genre. And yet, I feel like there's relatively little representation of like pure cowboys in Hollywood. I don't mm. know if cowboys just aren't that glamorous, maybe. But like yeah. you said, <laughs> this one funded by the beef industry. Better make it exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's one archetype that I still haven't seen in our films or our books, and that's the hmm. cowboy, the bard, the lonesome crooner. <laughs> Buster Scruggs. You mean a hondo type? The, 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 the cowboy shepherd who's singing Home on the Range, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not a very exciting movie, is it? He just goes mm. off by himself and hums. What else does he do? Touche. Touche. <laughs> just minding his own business, isn't he? Huh. Not an exciting movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's minutes of a guy minding his own business, <laughs> sleeping under a tree in times ten, <laughs> smoking yeah, his pipe, yeah. playing a little watching guitar, the watching the deer and the antelope play. <laughs> Maybe he gets himself a little tiny ranch one day and a couple of sheep. You know, it's like all right, cool. It does make me think like the cows and these archetypes. When we read Shane, John didn't. You haven't read Shane with us, but one of the first episodes we did was was Shane, and it was really anti cow herder really anti-cowboy. The bad guys were the guys with the cows. The good guys were the ones who were trying to set up farms and start farming for America. Yeah. So <laughs> Sounds like bull to me. Bunch of beer. But it's interesting. In this, we are rooting for the cowboys. They, Even though John Wayne's shady, the rest of them are good, and they're going to save a town by bringing cows. Shane, they're going to ruin a town by turning it only into a cow trail. Mm. So it's interesting to see... I, you know, you think of cowboys movies being pretty black and white, but every one is situated in a different way. So I guess all of the movies we've watched have been black and white, literally. But lots of the westerns change a lot. We've seen good sheriffs, bad sheriffs. We've seen 
making the town modern being a good thing and in Destry Rides Again, you know, making the town, giving the town law, giving it order, that's a good thing according to the director and the main characters. And then in Stagecoach, making the town modern is a bad thing. All the modern people are bad. So it's just interesting to see how different directors have different opinions in these westerns when before, especially when we see John Wayne being a bad actor, or bad person here doing bad things. It's interesting to see even John Wayne has some, he can play different positions in westerns. This movie actually made me feel like John Wayne has a real depth to his performance that I feel like is maybe flattened in the contemporary Mm -hmm. imagination of what it means to be John Wayne or what it means to be a John Wayne character. Because he plays pretty much the polar opposite of what he played in Stagecoach, and it makes me really want to explore his career with greater depth and attention Mm -hmm. to find out what was really going on with this guy. I mean, you know, Stagecoach was the first John Wayne movie I'd watched, but the the ground, the table had been set for me by, you know, public enemies like, oh, Elvis was a racist and fuck John Wayne, you know, and, you know, other, other you know, media, kind of this blanket statement of, of John Wayne sucks. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think there's more to him. I'm not quite prepared to say what it is about him. You know, but I'm I'm interested in exploring. I think a lot of it's down to like the Oscars incident as well, isn't it? You remember? Yeah. The Oscars incident? The Oscars incident. When Marlon Brando won his second Oscar for The Godfather, he didn't get up on stage and accept his award. He didn't attend. He, he sent a proxy to pick up the award for him, who was a, a Native American girl from, a, I can't remember which tribe exactly, but basically she, she was there to speak about, like read a statement from Marlon Brando about mistreatment of you know Native Americans and so forth by Hollywood. And apparently at this this Oscars event, John Wayne had to be restrained by security from literally jumping out of his seat, Will Smith style, and attacking this girl. Now, what's crazy about that is that in 1972, the security of the Oscars was better than it is in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of crazy to think about. But nonetheless, John Wayne did get restrained by security from attacking this Native American woman for reading this statement, basically, about the mistreatment of like Native American people in, in Hollywood. Apparently, Clint Eastwood wasn't too happy either. But I think that I think that's affected a lot of John Wayne's like public perception as just mm. being kind of a racist guy. I think that's why. Now I'm not saying every single John Wayne character was racist, but you know. yeah, yeah, sure. Well, this is new information for me. I'm going to chew on that. That's good. That's good. Look, look it up on YouTube. It's very interesting. You can't see John Wayne. You, that, I, you, I just heard about you know you hear about that afterwards, but you can see the footage. Yeah. on YouTube. Honestly, it makes me want to get more into Brando. Then, and then you could also. I watched an interview with Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando is cool as hell. Because I watched an interview with Marlon Brando about it, and he's like, he, he talked about it for like seven minutes or so, and he was like very calm and articulate in the way of talking about it. He, he wasn't polemical, he wasn't, you know, facetious, or he wasn't, you know, like overly like, you know, indignant and morally self-righteous. He was just like, listen, you know, I, I want to just say it, you know, I thought these things need to be said. Mm-hmm. He was like very laid back about it, it was quite interesting. And he didn't mm-hmm. badmouth anybody either, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. Yeah. He just states his mind clearly and articulately. Maybe we should watch The Godfather yeah. soon. I want to see what... Yeah, yeah. I watched it not too long ago. I watched like the entire Godfather trilogy, like on a like fourteen hour, <laughs> like oh, like twelve hour plane ride or something like that. It was crazy. It was crazy. <laughs> it was so intense. <laughs> I, like, I walked off the plane. I felt like I was like in Sicily or something. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was beginning to forget who I was anymore. I was like kissing people in the forehead for no reason. <laughs> okay. Any last thoughts? Yeah, it was a pretty good movie. I'm not I'm yeah, not sure I enjoyed it as much as the other ones we've watched so far. Yeah, I kind of like the hokiness of those ones, but it was good. Yeah. 
I like this movie for two scenes that were actually quite related to each other. One of them was a dozen people all saying yeehaw at the same time. That was mental. <laughs> and then and then the other one was the close-up on John Wayne going, Stampede! <laughs> <laughs> I thought sick. Yeah, that was great. That was a great scene. You know, th- that reminds me of like the greatest set piece from There'll Be Blood. You know, the oil, the oil tanker goes up. Like that's one time where even though your boss is an asshole, oh, yeah. he calls the shots when there's an emergency. Kind of yeah. a cool scene. Kind of a cool scene. Yeah. I love There'll Be Blood. Like it is just the more westerns I watch, the more I realize mm. There'll Be Blood is just a pure western. Like I always thought like not knowing westerns, I was like, There'll Be Blood's yeah. like, you know, a, a revisionist style or whatever or this or that. No. Think about it now, it's really just a Western. That's as simple as that. It's not complex what it is. I don't know why I ever thought otherwise. Mm-hmm. I guess I, under- I underestimated the, di- uh, the dramatic range of the Western genre, that's why. Yeah, I um, the American Film Institute has like a top 10 list of, you know, all the genres. And I think it's really interesting how they have a one-sentence definition of every genre. <laughs> Which I didn't think was really possible, but like romantic comedy, it's the meeting of two people, you know, coming together results in in comedic situations. Oh, yeah, that's a great definition of a romantic comedy. But their their definition of the Western was people struggle against like the wilderness. You know, I wish I had this quote up right in front of me, but but the defining characteristic of the Western they thought was the struggle and like the nature the wilderness aspect of, you know, it's like... Yeah, I've heard that interpretation of Westerns before. Yeah, but I think that in that definition, there will be blood, absolutely. I mean, you know, you can even say that, oh, well, it deals with human nature, but then that's too too vague. So I think, I I feel like, I feel like the definition of the Western is too vague. The one they've given is too Mm. vague there. Well, I was thinking, how can we rein in something like the shootist in with this? Because... There's no wilderness there. It takes place all in a city. But what he is, yeah, he's struggling against death. Yeah. The great unknown. Perhaps, you know, the greater unknown than the, you know, the great yeah. plains. I, th- I, think, I think that's a really reasonably sensible definition, to be honest. I think we've often seen it, too. It's a struggle for or a struggle against society. I think that often happens, too. Mm. Mm. But I think the, the hallmark is that, yeah. you, you know, I think it's mm. very characteristic of the Westerns. I think it needs to be recommended as, like, fundamental. It's a particular time and place. Yeah. It's a particular setting. Specifically, what what what's special about that setting? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the world, the United States is still, you know, it's in color. You know, it's still developing at this point. So you you are very close to nature. Like you are on this this overlap. Like most of the Western films go from one side of the border to the other, between from the states of nature, mm-hmm. you know, to some kind of basic society based on you know the ownership of property. So I think it, it's really like you know the struggle mm-hmm. against nature it, it, in a sense, specifically mm-hmm. as it took place in the early history of the United States of America. Mm. Well, like a particular, not the early, early history, but like, the, yeah. I'm not sure how you would describe it, but that particular period of America in the 1800s and the early 1900s. So I'm reading Beowulf right now, and I feel like, because I was just thinking to myself, could you have a Western set in the United Kingdom or, you know, a European country? You know, Beowulf was composed much, like a long time after the people who it's, describing you know the kings who it describes you know through other sources we can determine that those people existed at a certain time but what you have in the poet writing about the past is a mythologizing and a fantasizing about it you know it's not just that you know this guy came over and you know killed the great enemy of the people who was murdering them while they slept 
or slaughtered a dragon or, <laughs> you know, and got slaughtered by a dragon. But it's that it's that the, there's these elements that are added to it that are revisionist and go above and beyond the everyday. And in that sense, like the things that happen in Western movies, you know, this was just what, 150 years ago? Those things didn't literally happen, but the basis of them is historical fact. And from there, myths and legends spring out. And I think that that kind of Arthurian or kind of old English mythologizing has some essence of the Western to it. Yeah, no, I can definitely see the overlap there. Like you say, particularly with this sort of mythical quality to it, you know, in, in absence of facts, you know, all we have are stories, I guess, in a sense. It's a mythos, you know, not a logos necessarily. But I do think it's the distinct, like you said, we've said the distinctive thing is the Knight's Tale come, because what's key about, the, you know, the, the Knight's stuff is like, you know, I always think of the G.K. Chesterton short history of England, where he talks about Knight's Tales and Arthurian romances and so forth. And he describes them as being the remnants of roman the roman empire and the christianity it brought with it the christianity the technology and just you know the general the learning and culture that the romans left behind in you know england and you know france and whatever else they were and they left behind this rationality so even among the wilderness and all the forests and all the you know represented by the dragons and these backwards people and so forth and strange creatures and just you know green knights that come to you know attack them well that really is as gk chaston would have it in the knight's tale is another kind of struggle against nature like you're saying but the difference is the, the lineage like they are sort of like represent rationality and you know uh, the roman ways of life and the, yeah the christian, well, christian roman roman. ways of life Whereas I think the difference, so, yeah. so there's a conti continuity there is my point, where they're almost emulating mm -hmm. a certain you know, way they were in the past. Whereas here, th it's all focused on the future. Like, sure, they did come from England, but they they've, cut, they've, they've cut all ties at this point. So really, they're purely focused on the future, and it's, if, it's as if they're in square one. So there's no lineage, there's no tradition to build on. They're, they're making everything from scratch. So there, there, there is this lawlessness yet, and you know, it's pretty yeah. much fundamental to society. And Well, I mean, by definition, law. Mm -hmm. Law can't be instituted lawfully by definition because there's no law until you make one. Everything that comes before law is just strength. Might makes right. You know, there's no lawful action before law is instituted. And right now, in, in or in the Westerns, we're so close to this borderline between law and lawlessness because, you know, it's not set in Estonia. It's mm -hmm. not solidified. I think that's, that to me is what's characteristic about the Western as being this radically new place. That's just coming into being. And I think that explains the fascination with it. You know, almost like, you know, the, the way a person focuses on, you know, you know, the childhood. Not the part of the childhood where they don't really have any memories of it, like the pilgrims. It's like sort of way back. No, the part of the, that they can kind of remember a little bit, you know, when the cowboys were around and these towns were starting to get built up and get bigger and industry was taking off. People can still kind of remember that. That's why it's important and distinctive. Yeah. And it's illustrated. You can see that within this movie when John Wayne kills a man, takes his land, lays down the law. He's grabbing land, establishing his own law when there was nothing, and he even tells his men, what are you going to tell the police? Are you going to tell the authorities? I am the law. Yes, yes. And then finally, yeah, after he makes that law, mm -hmm. then his son gets to establish a real uh, fair law, a just law. So it is the might breaks right that gets turned into a just law in the middle of the movie. Well, Don Diego, Don Diego's men say, oh, this is Don Diego's land. It was given to him through titles, deeds, you know, grants, whatever. So it was granted to Don Diego by law. John Wayne says, that's too much land for one man. <laughs> 
So like, you know what I mean? Like that, like it was uttered by John Wayne on this date. That is too much land for one man. And therefore this is the new law. You know what I mean? Like it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's how, that's how thin the foundations of these laws are, right? It's one man's word against another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the pivotal moment yeah. as well when Matt intervened is when he wasn't threatening to shoot a guy who was being insubordinate. He was starting to hang him. That was the moment when Matt said, right, enough's enough. This guy's become, you know, mm. a tyrann- got too far. Even in his lawlessness, he's, he's just got take, gone too far, taking the law into his own hands. Almost like there's a limit to how much you can claim to yourself before people just break and just revolt against you. Well, what's the difference between hanging and shooting? Because I don't understand that. I think it's somehow symbolic. Because uh, I that sh- shooting yeah, yeah. is something done like like in a sense of like you know dagger you know pistols drawn at dawn you know shooting is like an honorable thing you have a chance of surviving you know a gun battle you have a chance of surviving maybe yeah. it was a fair fight or at least it's quick and painless you know what I mean it's not necessarily premeditated yeah. whereas a hanging like you've got to set up the rope you got to get some guy to do it you you know a crowd builds up you maybe even got to build a guild like it's, it's yeah. a lot of effort so. Yeah. I think that's the difference. It's like, no, are you just going to... It's a unilateral condemnation to death. Well, I guess they'll tie, you know, probably just tie a rope around, you know, around a tree probably. I think to build it. hanging too is like what you do in the state. Like only a state authority can issue hanging. So it's associated with the government saying, you two need to die because you're a danger to society. Mm-hmm. So he's trying... It's almost like he is making... It's too much like yeah, he's making yeah, himself yeah, the actual exactly. law. He's almost too literally trying to make himself the law. Yeah. And yeah. At a certain point. The people rightfully say, right, this can't go on any longer. <laughs> it's yeah. actually overthrown. Well, why? So that that's one thing that this movie didn't have. This movie did not have lawmen. Every movie we've seen has had lawmen. This movie did not have lawmen. Mm. Literally a lawless environment. It's a state of war. Yeah. So I guess if you see Westerns as a spectrum from mm. lawlessness to lawfulness, this would be way on the spectrum towards lawlessness. For sure. Whereas by contrast, I think something like yeah. Destry Rides again, by the end of the movie, is quite a lawful place. By the end of... Sure. I would put There Will Be Blood. Right oh, by this yeah. Movie. There Will Be Blood is absolutely lawless as well, yeah. <laughs> I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, Zach and John. Talk to you later, Bob and Zach.